The following audio session was recorded live at the 2017 Region 2 Convention in Costa Mesa, California. Please visit oar2.org for information about the 2018 convention in Sacramento and to get links for more convention recordings. Thank you for listening. Okay, I guess we're about to start. If you please, if you please take a seat, I'd really appreciate that. Oh, I got a bottle. Thank you. All right, I'll give you a few moments to settle down. Okay, welcome to the uh, Light Years Workshop. My name is Hannah. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this workshop. And we just went eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and I, I don't know if I won or I lost, but anyway. We didn't decide. Huh? We didn't decide. Okay. Anyway, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay, before we begin, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please check again. Would you check mine in there? Um, The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. But if you miss out on something, you can always buy a record. You know, our guy is up there, and he likes to sell them. If there's press in the room, please do not take any authorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. There will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may order outside in the foyer. This workshop will have speakers followed by an ask it bas- by a followed by ask it basket questions the topic for the session is light years decades of imperfect recovery i qualify for the imperfect recovery and let's welcome our first speaker jerry from san diego my name is jerry and i'm a compulsive my name is jerry and i'm a compulsive overeater And by the grace of God, I've been abstinent for 41 years. And when, and I'm going to start, I'm not going to go through my, um, my, my childhood and how, how lonely it was and how dark it was and how I was an only child and it was just me and my German shepherd and, and the dog, yeah, my German shepherd and the, the grease that I would eat while I was watching TV um, and um, and then that was my that was pretty much my life. My mother was I'm not going to go into it. My mother was a um, <laughs> was an alcoholic, and uh, she smoked a lot. And she laid in bed and watched TV and smoked because she was always sick. And my father worked two jobs, so I really was an only child. And I was really um, it was like a it was like a lonely childhood, but I didn't know. Um, so, but I just ate. You know, and I was a really devout Catholic. I went to Catholic school, and I was very devout. I went to Mass every morning. Um, but, um, and then, of course, the whole thing, how we are with food, and I use food, and, and, and blah, blah, blah. There's only one thing from my past that I think is important, and that is that when I was pregnant, I, um, I gained, I, I started out at 130, and I'm only 4 foot 10, 
and I gained 50. Yeah, so I went up to 180 pounds. So for the past three months of my pregnancy, they uh, told me that I had to lose weight. So I, um, I, I tried, and I did, however, and I got toxemia. And so, um, but the baby didn't come out. So they, um, they took her before she was due, and if they wouldn't have taken her, due to my toxemia, due to my weight, she would have died if they would have waited a few more days. So the reason I say this every time is because this disease is just as serious as that of the alcoholic. The alcoholic can kill because of their disease. We can too. So for me, this disease is a matter of life and death. And when I first came in, I came in on the flimsy read of hope, like it says in the big book. Someone in my other weight loss program, which we're not supposed to mention names, but anyway, on my other weight loss program, um, she came here because it wasn't working for her, because that program wasn't working for her. And um, so she came here, and she had a lot of weight to lose, and I really thought she was hopeless. So when she came back to us to deliver the message, um, she was... um, She had lost weight, so she gave me hope, and she talked about OA, and she talked about what you people do here, and there was the hope in her, but I didn't think I had that much weight to lose, but I I wanted to lose lose weight. I mean, that's really all I really wanted, Um, and so... um, I followed her to OA. And other people in, in, that, in that group, they didn't come because they thought we were fanatics. And I didn't care because I wanted to lose weight. So I came by myself. And I even got lost on the way, but I still came. And I remember when I came to my first meeting, what I found there was the atmosphere of God. That's what I found in my first meeting. It was the atmosphere of God, and I heard God in all of you that were there. That's where I got the hope. People got up and talked about how they had lost weight, and they had talked about God. That's what they talked about. And that, that was just the magic that brought me back. When I, um, uh, I went home that first night, and usually I would stop at the store and buy junk. Well, I stopped at the store, but I didn't eat it. I gave it to my daughter, um, and, um, um, but I didn't eat it. And when I got up in the morning, my husband had asked me, How, what was that meeting like? And I told him it was just really, and it was just something that was unexplainable. And he knew there was something different about this. So I came back the next week, and people were talking about the big book, and they were talking about a sponsor, and they were talking about something called gray sheet, and they were talking about abstinence, and I didn't know what they were talking about. So I, um, uh, the second week that I came back, there was a woman that was walking up there, and she was being friendly, and uh, she asked me if I had a sponsor. And I said, no, how do you get a sponsor? And she said, well, you can call me. So I, I said, okay, you know, it was like, so what, what's the big deal? And she goes, buy a big book and buy the gray sheet. And those were the two things that I started with. And um, uh, then she says, call me tomorrow. And so I called her, and she says, is this a problem for you to call me? And I said, no. She says, well, can you call me later? And I said, okay. I mean, I didn't know why they were making such a big deal about this phone call. And, um, uh, but, and, and I remember what I, and, and, but anyway, I did call her and I started to work with her. 
and I started to follow some kind of a, well, it was the gray sheet, you know, and when I saw that gray sheet, there were two things on it that I thought that I would never do. Weigh and measure my food, and um, um, it said you can't have alcoholic beverages, and, or we suggest that you don't have alcoholic beverages. I'm not an alcoholic, but I thought, no, when New Year's Eve comes around, I have to have, I have to get drunk. Otherwise, my whole year will be gone. I mean, it'll be a dud. <laughs> to me, that would be like the year would be lost. I would be a dud if I didn't get drunk on New Year's Eve. And so I remember telling my sponsor, you know, when New Year's Eve comes, comes around, I'm going to have to get drunk. And she said, why don't we wait and get through Thanksgiving first? <laughs> and um, I said, well, okay. But I still had every intention of getting drunk on, um, and she said Christmas too. I forgot about that. Um, but, but, you know, so I mean, and it came around. And I was abstinent by that time. And, um, and I got the scale. And I started to, to, to uh, follow the gray sheet. And, um, and when they say about imperfect abstinence, I don't really know what they mean, but I never thought that my abstinence was as good as anyone else's because I was stuffing those cups. You know, I was smashing down and then on the scale and then, the, you know, I, had to, I don't know, I had to weigh some things. I tried to do as much stuffing as I could. Um, and then I would, when I would weigh my food, I would look at the scale, but I'd get on my knees so that I could get more. You know, I always wanted more. So if that's what imperfect means, you know, because I, I have never done anything perfectly. Um, so that, that to me, I, but then these people would get up and they'd say stuff. And I'd say, oh, my abstinence isn't as good as them. You know, and then I, I don't like to speak in front of people. And my sponsor told me after six months, you better get up and speak. And I said, um, I don't know what to say. Just tell them you've been absent for six months. So I did. And, and it was okay. You know, I didn't die because I spoke in front of people after six months of abstinence. Um, and um, she also told me that I had to do these assignments. And so I did the assignments. Because she said, you know, if people want to know what, well, what I did, what I did, whatever she said, I did. You know, she told me to buy the gray sheet, I did. She told me to weigh and measure, I did. I mean, it said to weigh and measure. Um, she told me to get the big book. And you know what? Personally, I didn't like the big book. But everybody was making such a big deal out of it. Oh, yeah, I read the big book, you know. And everybody was making a big deal out of it. So, um, um, but I, there, I didn't really relate there was just one thing in the big book that I related to at the beginning. And that was when Bill went to Winchester Cathedral and he had that spiritual experience there. I thought, oh, I can relate to that because when I went, because I was such a devout Catholic, I would go to Mass every morning and I could relate for that. And then I said, oh, okay, I have that same feeling that that Bill has had. And that's how I first started to relate to the big book. And since I came in all those years, the big book has always been a part of my life. I have always read the big book or the AA 12 and 12 and then ours. But those have been always my, my basic things. Now, I still read the big book. When I first came in, well, for many, many years, I used to write my food down. 
And I would write it. And I, I, last night I was looking at one of my journals from a long, long time ago, the only one I have. And it was in 1979, and I had been abstinent for three years. And in then, uh, 1979, I was writing my food up there. Uh, and I called my food into my sponsor for a long time, too. But by this time, I wasn't calling it in. But I was writing, and I go, oh, look what I was eating, you know? And it was basically still gray sheet. Uh, and it was just modified because I was um, maintenance. And... Um, and, and, um, and I was always writing from something in the big book. And when I say, uh, and I would read a chapter. When I wasn't getting assignments from her anymore, I was reading a chapter every night. And that wasn't just from the 163 days. I was reading from the stories, you know, and I still like to go back and read the stories. But in those stories, they gave me so much. They gave me so much. I would remember it during the strange mental blank spots. You know, there's one in there that um, there's a story. I can't. I think, I don't, mm, is it Keys to the Kingdom? I think it is. And she talks about. Um, um, oh God, what is it? Oh, salvation. In the Hebrew Bible, the word salvation means to come home. And that's what it is when we come here. This is what I felt here when I came here. I felt that I came home. And um, then there's another, there's another story in there about um, the, this lady. She, it was fear of fear. Um, and she's, she was talking about how um, she would drink over anything, even if the rug was crooked, you know. And so I have this... Um, I have this um, picture uh, on top of my bed and it's a it's a crooked um it's crooked and I don't have a man in my life to come and fix it you know so that it'll be straight and it drives me crazy but I don't know how to fix it you know I'm just you know I just have a master's degree and all this other kind of stuff by the grace of God you know and I'm just retired but I don't know how to fix this crooked picture so I thought well maybe you really need to call your neighbor across the street He's the last person. He's one of the two last people that I should be calling to come and fix my picture above my bed. Um, uh, and I know that. Um, so then I just thought, but it's so crooked. Then I remembered the story from the big book. Oh, yeah. She would drink because the rug was crooked. And you have a crooked picture. Do you think maybe this is the same situation? And it is. It really is. Even though it's not food, it's still the same situation. So the big book, you know, even the stories, you know, they affect my life. The big book affects my life. And when I first came in, there were four things that I can say are responsible for my recovery for all that. The big book, abstinence, and God, and the fellowship. And um, when I think of... um, when I think of God, it's abstinence. Because abstinence is my link to God. And um, God was there, but I wasn't aware of God. And abstinence gave me this inside, inner being of God. That's what abstinence gives me. And I can't have one without the other. I, can't, I, I don't have a God of my understanding without abstinence. You know, when I came in, I had a God of their understanding. But I don't have a God of my understanding if I'm not abstinent. So um, I don't want to lose my abstinence. And when we first came in, 
um, I remember my sponsor that I had at that time, she was like the OA uh, really, really strict person in San Diego, and she was from New York. And um, I have my other New York sponsor with me now, too, but that she's not the one. Oh, wow, great. Um, <laughs> um, I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. But anyway, she said, you don't want to take that first bite, Jerry, because you may never get it back. And I was scared. So a lot of the time, I, I was afraid. It wasn't because out of virtue. It was like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I might not get it back. And since then, people do get it back. But it's very, it's, it's hard, you know. I heard someone at the World Service, um, World Service talk about what it was like in, in, when she was in relapse. She says it was just clawing her way through the dark wall. And I thought, oh, God, I'm glad she said that because it, that's what it's like. And that's why I don't want to take the first bite. Um, and it's just a matter of life and death. And um, the other, um, the other, and let's see, it was abstinence, God, and the big book, and the fellowship. And how has my, how has my recovery changed? The longer I'm in it, the more f- service I have to do. You know, I started out as a sponsor. I was really busy, busy in my life. I had two, two, two daughters. I had a husband. My daughters are gone now. I mean, they're gone up to the Bay Area. And my husband, I don't have him anymore. So I'm alone with my two kittens now. And, uh, but what has changed is that I have become, I mean, there's a lot of service. You know, the longer I abstain, the more service I have to do. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that's going to say this up here. Um, that it, and I, I started out only with sponsoring. Um, and then, of course, um, it went into intergroup. And I thought, you know, I have to stay out of a, this other relationship, so I better get more involved with intergroup. And I didn't stay out of the relationship, but I, I, I stayed abstinent, you know, and eventually got that, that person was out of my life too. But, um, but it kept me abstinent. And I got involved with the intergroup, and then I became chair of intergroup. Then it was R2, and now it's World Service. And so um, um, I have a purpose in life. I have a purpose in life. Thank you. My time is up, and I did make it through. Thank you, Jerry. And would you please pass the Ask It Basket box around and keep circling it until I tell you to stop? And thank you so much, Jerry. We've known each other for a long time. It's wonderful, the friends you make. And now we have another speaker, and her name is Helen, and she's from Long Beach. Hi, my name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 41 years. I initially uh, got here because I uh, put on back 100 pounds I had just lost in Weight Watchers. And a person at my work told me about it. She said, I went to a meeting called Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, they have that? Because I knew about AA and the concept of addiction. And she said, you know, it really wasn't for me, but I think it would be for a person like you. (laughs) So there you have it. And I was pretty young. And I can tell you from my first meeting what I heard. I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And I know one thing about you if you have decades of recovery, if you've been in these rooms decades And that is you wholeheartedly believe you are bodily and mentally different from your fellows without reservation. You bought that message. 
you drank the Kool-Aid the very first night and uh, bought into that. And uh, another thing that I know is your food may not be perfect, but you wholeheartedly believe in the steps and the tenets of this program that they're going to bring you a lasting peace. Um, because sometimes, you know, the food isn't always perfect. I don't know. Most people have kind of a story like mine. You know, I came in, they said it was a spiritual program, but they handed me a diet. So it was kind of confusing, you know, so I did that gray sheet for a while and I would hold on white knuckling it, eating probably 1200 calories a day. And you know, when you're young and active, you need thousands of calories. So I was hungry all the time. And so at some point in the day, some innocuous food, let's say a graham cracker would pass my lips and I'd go, oh, well, I've blown it anyway. I might as well binge until I drop. And there was nothing in between. Either I had the hold of the food or then something would flip and I never knew what that something was or the food would have control of me. And there was nothing in the middle. And when you're not eating, when you're on that flip, you think you have all the answers and everybody else in OA is an idiot. You know, when you're writing that thing, you're feeling so... Because in the beginning, they had this saying, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. You feel so wonderful. You can't imagine the day will come where you'll be tricked by the food, where this disease will rise up and it will once again be cunning, baffling, and powerful. You think you've got it. You think, you know, just by going to the meetings that something is going to flow through you by osmosis. And then I just want to read, you know, get into my next point here. It took me nine years to abstain. And then finally somebody said, you know, maybe you should just quit dieting. Maybe you should just like eat three meals a day with two snacks and only keep certain binge foods, you know, on your list. For me, it's cake, cookies, candy, and ice cream. And just don't eat those a day at a time. Quit trying to restrict and over-exercise. And, you know, because when I was eating 1,200 calories, I was jogging and working out with weights. Or otherwise, I was binging with a remote control in my hand. (laughs) You know, there was just nothing in between. And so this program has taught me ambiguity, shades of gray, imperfection and my thrust of energy began on working the steps and pulling together my life. This is my belief today. I did that diet binge thing as a distraction for the life I should have been living. I did that instead. When my daughter was about 15, she said, I need a scale. I said, for what? She said, so I could know how much I weigh. And I said, what will you do with that number? Will you eat less? Will you? I said, because if you know that number, your whole life may someday be about that number, (laughs) you know, and working towards a better number or the number your friend has, or we never bought a scale. We've you want to know what you weigh, go to the gym. (laughs) You don't need to know that three times a day. And every time after you poop, because (laughs) That becomes the thrust and the focus of why you wake up in the morning, to hit that number. I hope that life is about more than that. You know, I hope life is about giving back to the world, being part of the, 
you know, the greater community, matching my talents with something the world needs, raising children, being your sponsor, you know, cooking, cleaning, whatever it is people do, experiencing travel and new experience. I hope that's my life. And that's, you know, the thrust of my energy today, to be a worker among workers, a friend among friends. And um, imperfect recovery means also that I'm not in charge of my own character defects because that's what drove a lot of the eating. Uh, We had a panel earlier that was fabulous called Restless, Irritable, and Discontent. And the big book says that's who we are. Food isn't our problem. It's our solution until the freaking day it turns on us. It's our solution. So if the problem is restless, irritable, and discontent, then what's the solution? The steps. And the steps are a lot about taking contrary action. And I'll just tell you a little bit about my first spiritual awakening. Most of you know this story quite well. Um, Because for me, I was young. I, I was work in the night shift in a hospital at a critical care unit. And one of the new rules or mandates came down that the nurses now would be emptying all the trash cans. So, of course, I called my sponsor and said, well, that's not right. I have a degree. I didn't go to school to empty trash cans. Why should I empty the trash cans? That's not even in my job description. And she said, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash can?" But I don't want what's easy. I want what's right and fair and what I deserve and what's mine. And and it just gets crazy. I don't want what's easy. And sometimes the easier, softer way is just to acquiesce to life as it's rolling down the pike at you. Not to rail against it. Not to be the perpetual malcontent. Not to be the one that's always right. But to just flow with it. And that's the thing that's hard for me. And that's what recovery is to me. Recovery is, you know, trying to stick to some food plan that's going to keep me somewhere under 300 pounds, you know, and, and going into work and my family and all those places not being that perpetual malcontent. One of the things I was told early in my Overeaters Anonymous career when I would say, it's not fair, the fair is in Pomona. No, I'm from Covina, so that's what we had to say there. You know, um, and there was this old guy, some of you probably met him, named Webster. And when I say old, that means the age I am now. Um, But one of the things that he used to say was this, he would tell these stupid riddles that had nothing to do with overeating at the meeting. And this was one of them. Hey, everybody, can you tell the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic? And everybody would go, what? And he'll, I'll tell you what that is. A psychotic thinks two plus two is three. A neurotic knows two plus two is four. But he can't stand it. And that was me. I knew that life was coming down the pike at me, but it wasn't fair, it wasn't right, it shouldn't happen to a person like me, and I was railing against the system. And that's why my recovery was imperfect, (laughs) because I couldn't accept life as it really, truly was. I was that person always wanting two plus two to be three. I knew the truth. 
One time I, I called a sponsor. I wrote more about my mother than any other person in this program. I wanted her to be what, you know, we call a mommy mom, you know, milk and cookies and love and understanding it. It just wasn't her. She was raised in, in, during the Depression by a single parent. They were very poor. She, you know, my dad died when I was three. She had to raise me all by herself. She never went back to school until she was in her late 40s. You know, she had a very tough life, and she was a compulsive overeater. And I wrote a 10th step. And for those of you who may be listening to the podcast, it goes something like this. Why do I resent this person? How does it affect my security, self-esteem, personal relationships, and ambition? Where have I been selfish, self-seeking, fearful, and dishonest? And the last one you're going to love, where am I at fault? (laughs) How come it always ends up with that question? I don't know. But if you do a big book style, I know people have different ways of doing it, but probably most of us started with the big book and writing in that uh, format. You can only come to no other conclusion other than somehow or you're another, you're at fault. And I was angered because my mom had done something really bad. And I called my sponsor defiant, not wanting to do the writing, saying, you tell me, do you think that's too much to ask from a mother? Whatever it was. And she said, no, that is not too much to ask for a mother. But Helen, we're talking about your mother. And yes, that is too much to ask of your mother. It's like, oh, yeah, what? there we go again, two plus two. This is my freaking mother. She's going to be this way till the day she freaking dies. And I had this fantasy because I'm in OA, she would metamorphose at the end. That didn't happen. So if any of you are thinking that, <laughs> didn't happen to me. I'll tell you that. So it's a lot of life as life happens. Um, a lot of giving back, giving service. Um, you know, working the steps, working the food. I had to end a lot of the perfectionism with food. And um, even though... Uh, It took me nine years to abstain. I went on to abstain 12 years after that and broke my abstinence after 12 years. It's very humiliating to start again, you know, when you've got 12. You've taken 12 candles and you can't get to 13. And now I've got 18 years. But, you know, so, um, and that was because I was unwilling to be honest about the state of my marriage, my life. And uh, was lying a lot, you know, even to the person who sponsored me. So, um, you know what I equate working this program to is sometimes those little wind-up cars, you know how you wind them up, they hit the wall, you back it up, it's going to hit the wall again, you pull the car away. Overeaters Anonymous takes out that car and puts it in a different direction. That's what that does for you. There's a line from a famous movie that goes something like this. When faced with an inconvenient truth, we move very quickly from denial to despair. There's a lot of inconvenient truths. In between denial and despair is action. And that's very frightening because you've got to pick that car up and aim it in a completely different direction so it won't hit the same freaking wall. And action is terrifying. 
for years, I dated nothing but alcoholic men who could not support themselves through their own voluntary contributions. <laughs> the last alcoholic I dated was a 300-pound unemployed musician. Thank you. And uh, he left my house one night, and I said, you know what? There is a sixth and seventh step on this. Why don't I use this? And I said, God, whatever it is in me. And he was walking out the door. That would have me attracted to that man. I am now willing that you take it. And I am willing to partner with you in this removal of this man and whatever causes this man. And I can tell you, I am 61 years old. I did that when I was 35. I have not since then dated somebody who could not support themselves or who was hopelessly drug addicted. That's a miracle. That's why we keep coming back. So I could get married, have a family, do all those things you can't do with a freaking addict without a job. <laughs> so I wasn't just fat. I had numerous problems, and that's why I'm in this program, for help with those problems. Thank you so much for letting me share. Hi, I'm Hannah, compulsive eater. Hi, <laughs> Wonderful talks. Thank you both very much. And Jerry and I go back a long way. We've known each other, and we meet all over the world where they have conventions because that's my life today, OA. But uh, I did not come here willingly, and I'm the newest one on the block. I came to OA in the fall of 1977, and I was 150% gracious that you know, Jerry talked about because... I had to do it perfectly. Now, I was on this pink cloud. It took three months, and I fell off. And the only reason why I came to OA was because I had a husband who found another wonderful program six years before I did, and I was so worried he was going to leave me. You see, I had a lot of control over him when he was doing his thing, and all of a sudden, he was kind of growing up, and I fell completely apart. I mean, that was a very difficult time. It took me six years to get here. But uh, I came from about 200 pounds, and thank God, you know, I've released a lot of it, about 85 pounds or something like that, which is great. But the miracle, and I didn't believe in miracles when I came. The miracle is that I came back after a binge, which happened to be Christmas, at, friends, at a friend's place 500 miles from home. And I went prepared because I worked perfect abstinence, no gray sheet. And I had all my food with me, and all my friend's son did was he offered me a cookie, and that was it. It takes just one. And I was off and running, and I did that for only a weekend. And you don't gain 50 pounds, but I tell you, the misery was refunded instantly. And they took pictures. I could see my face. You know, I was really miserable. And so I'm very, very grateful that the miracle happened I don't know. I would have never asked anybody for help. I picked up that 1,000-pound phone, and I called someone, and that person made a deal with me. She was going to be there and meet me at the meeting and ask me to please come back. I did, and I've been here ever since, and it's been a wonderful life for me. I mean, life on life's terms, that was the hardest thing because I lost my husband, who had a wonderful program 20 years ago, but then I had to make a decision. You know, I had to rebuild my life, and my life became OA. I mean, it was always OA, but I couldn't give as much service as, as I would have liked to because we kind of divided our time. And like Jerry, you know, I started at the group, got to into group. And by the way, I never volunteered for anything. I was got nudged. Why don't you do this? <laughs> and then when I was in, in the inter group for a while and I used to go to conventions, why don't you try to get on the Region 2 board? 
oh, I can't do that. You know, the insecurity with me lasted a long time. I called the first five years of my program my apprenticeship, and then I finally realized, yes, there are miracles, and yes, there's a higher power, because it took me a long time to believe in the steps, and lo and behold, I had to do a workshop on step two, and I thought, maybe that's a good thing for me, because, you know, I had so many questions about all of it. I came from a non-religious background, my stepfather was actually kind of a socialist atheist, and so I really didn't know much about it. But I learned over the years, and slowly, I'm a slow learner, and I'm grateful for that today. And I, I grew up in another country. I went to um, school and grew up in Germany, and I was born there. But I knew from the time I was six years old what I wanted to be when I would grow up. I wanted to be a butter sales lady. <laughs> and the thing was, you know, I, I was fairly young when the war was over, and when I saw that, and they would take that butter and they put it into a brick shape, and I thought, you know, you can eat that. They wouldn't even know it. Now, isn't that crazy? And I was six years old. Now, I ended up being a tax accountant. It's a little different from a butter sales lady. <laughs> and I was also good at geographicals. I mean, I knew from the time I was that age that the people someplace else, you know, would be better. I mean, the, the people where I was, they weren't any good. So I planned to leave. And my geographicals are like 3,000 at a time. I almost worked my way around the world. And I, went, I finally got to Canada. It was easy in those days. And I got there, found this wonderful alcoholic. Leave it to me. I could not team up with a well-adjusted human being. I wanted excitement. Believe me, I had excitement. And... <laughs> Then when he finally got to the program, I thought, oh, my God, my life is over. He goes to those damn meetings all the time. I sat at home wrapped in my blanket, eating my stuff, watching television. And I heard a couple of people mention something about OA. And I had actually been to a meeting two years prior before I came. And what I did was I asked a friend who weighed another 100 pounds more than I did. And we went about 50 miles to Pomona from Pasadena. And so that you wouldn't know that I was there for me because, I, you know, you wouldn't know that we were there for her. <laughs> and I immediately did not identify with anything the guy said. He wore jeans, and they were about that big. I never wore jeans. I wore mumus. So how can you identify? <laughs> I had an explanation for everything. But when we were in Montreal and I was married, I thought, well, the people really aren't any better than they were where I came from. So I proceeded to come to California. And believe it or not, if it hadn't been for this program, I'd be living in Australia right now because I was working on the papers. And anyway, and it's funny, this morning in a workshop, I heard somebody mention butter, and that reminded me. I hadn't thought about it in many years. And that's crazy for a little kid like that. So for me, I feel I was born that way. And when I came, finally came back to program, it took me another two years, and as I said... I went on a binge after three months because I worked this perfectly. And the perfection, that was always the thing I was striving for. I wanted to be perfect because if I'm perfect, you accept me for the way I am. And I knew that I wasn't perfect. I knew I was fat, dumb, and stupid, you know, and ugly. And uh, I knew that. But I was always trying to be perfect because if I was perfect, then you would kind of not notice all the other things that were wrong with me. And so... Um, when I came back after three months, and I'd lost some weight, I finally woke up and came to, as we say, came, came to, came to believe, and I listened to the steps. I had heard that every once in a while I was gracious enough to go with my husband to one of those meetings, and I thought, you know, they read the book, big book and talk about it, and I thought, this is wonderful. If I were an alcoholic, I quit drinking while I ate about eight or ten donuts when nobody was watching, 
and it takes the identification with other people who have the same affliction that I have because, you know, you can put some booze in front of me and unless it's filled with sugar, I'm not interested. You can put pills in front of me. I'm not interested. And I was around all that stuff because I worked in that field at the time. But when I came to and I started to listen to a sponsor, and I had a sponsor right away. She said to me, I'll be your sponsor. But she only had about two months more than I did, and she disappeared. And then I found a sponsor and I actually worked with her. And she was my sponsor for 30 years until she passed away about five, six, seven years ago. I think my friend knows her too. And uh, we worked together, and I listened to someone. I never listened to anybody. I was good at giving orders and telling you what to do because I knew it all. And if I thought I didn't know it all, I wouldn't say anything. And the first time, would you keep passing it around, please, just in case somebody else has a question. And you can address the question to either one of us or just in general, and somebody will pick it up. But as I said, it took me a long time. I'm a slow learner. And I always call my first five years in in OA my apprenticeship. And I finally slowly got it. And today I'm addicted to the program. And I was addicted to food, all the junk food. And everyone in my family died because of obesity. And nobody got to be as old as I am. And even though I haven't been around as long as these two, but I got older than anybody else in my family because they all died of obesity-related diseases. And so, you know, I've been in program 39 years abstaining, And I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but it was half of my life. (laughs) So you know how old I'm getting, and that's fine, but I owe it all to this program. And I have to do some work. I have to give back what I've gotten. If I just sit on my butt at home or even go to a meeting and not do anything, I don't know what's going to happen. I have to give back what I got, and that's how I got into service. And I'm a convention junkie. I mean, I've been to meetings and conventions all over the – actually all over the world – And the most wonderful thing was somebody picked me up in New Zealand. I went to a meeting, and I was talking to someone, and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hi, Hannah, it's nice to see you. Isn't that something? The other end of the world, and we met in Albuquerque when I was a delegate at World Service. And that's how I stay connected to the program. But I always have to keep going to meetings. It's different. It's different. I have in the meeting, I have to share my feelings. And believe me, I did not have any character defects when I came. Now I have them all. (laughs) But I think it's good because I know. I know that I have them and I know what to do about them. And I don't have to eat over them. And that's the big thing because I can talk about it. And I would never tell you anything about me. When the word anonymity, I was very anonymous. I wouldn't tell anybody how I felt or what I did or anything. And I was so terrified when I came to OA I started in Pasadena, which is part of Los Angeles, big town. And I was so terrified that somebody might know because, you know, I was working. And I looked right and left over my shoulders. In a big town like that, nobody ever sees. And they didn't have a big sign outside, you know, OA meeting. But I thought people would check me out and know. And the difference is today, after almost 40 years, I have 39 and a half years, anybody who wants to know can know it. I have to respect your anonymity. But I can say, if it comes up. And then I went through a period where I was going to save the whole world. Anyone who had a little bit of a weight problem? And the only thing that happens is you get hit over the head. It's for people who want it, not for people who need it. And I learned that. I learned so much. I think I learned how to live in this program. I was so terrified of everything that was going on. I don't know how I made it from continent to continent. It was out of fear. And the thing with me was, once I told someone that I was going to do something... I could not go back. I remember 
having to get on board ship in Germany on my way to Canada, and I was terrified. I was going to ask my mother, can I stay home? No, you can't do that because, you know, stubborn, and I had to do it, and I was terrified. And today, after I've been in program, I've been all over the world, and it's fun. I go from meeting to meeting, and I have a lot of fun. But today, I feel good about myself. The first time somebody said to me, I like your sense of humor, they said I had such a shocked look on my face because I, my husband was always saying I was sitting on it. And today, I think everything <laughs> that was uh, after in program, because before program, he wouldn't have dared. I would have killed him. But <laughs> and we had a wonderful life because of program. But I could have missed it all. I could have missed the whole thing if I had kept going. And as I said, I probably would have all these diseases if I would still be alive in order to get the diseases. And conventions, and you know, it's such a camaraderie in this program. I can talk to a person that I have never seen before. I meet you here at the meeting. All of a sudden, uh, uh, at the convention, all of a sudden something may come up that really bugs me where I would go to the food before, and I can say, you know, I really have this problem. What a change. I could never do that because it was such a secretive life. And I tried by being perfect and all that that you wouldn't see that I was this 200-pound person and you had to take me the way I was because I did all these things for you. People pleasing, anybody ever heard of it? Yeah. I don't have to do that anymore today. I love to do things for people, but not... I used to do things for people because if I do this for you, then you have to like me. Well, they may not have liked me anyway. I cannot control another person. But I tried so hard, and it almost killed me. And as I said, I've been in program for quite a few years, and I love to go to conventions... Last time I heard her speak was in Boston, which was great, because she was one of the main speakers. And as I said, we've known each other for a long time. But I have to work at it every day. You talked to me about believing in something. I wasn't going to do that. You said um, prayer and meditation? Never. Ask me what I do today. It took me a while. And I kept running around asking people, how do you meditate? How do you meditate? And finally, somebody said, sit still and just don't move and breathe. <laughs> But I always wanted someone to tell me how to do things. And this program I had to learn by watching you, by listening to you. And what a big difference. I mean, I always wanted instructions on how to do things, and then I would follow them 150% like I did with the gray sheet. Believe it or not, I have the gray sheet in my purse. I, it's a reminder where I came from because I was so fanatic. I underweight and under, you know, did that because it was perfect. Like um, Jerry was saying, too, the perfect abstinence. There is no such thing. If you travel all over the world, as I have done, sometimes you get to a place made like Mongolia. They eat a lot of meat, and I'm a vegetarian. So you have to make do. But the difference is, at one time, I would have one piece of chocolate, one cookie. That's all I wanted, because, you know, it, it helped me. And before I knew it, I was often running and ate, ate everything and felt so terrible about myself. And, you know, the problems are still there. Last weekend, I had a weekend that was really something to talk about. and um, But I didn't have to eat over it. You know, everything kind of broke down, and Jerry was saying that, too. I'm alone now. My husband passed away 20 years ago. And I could just point and say, fix it. I can point all I want today, and nobody's going to fix it. So I have to make a choice. But one choice I do not have is to eat over it, because it's not going to fix that crooked picture, or it's not going to fix, you know, whatever goes wrong in the house. And I have to make a choice. I can try to do it myself, and I've learned a lot. My husband always said I was mechanically declined. And I was so proud of myself, I put an inversion unit together. And I got it, I went, and I bought the smallest one. 
And I said to the guy, does it fit, fit into my car? He said, no problem. He comes out with a box. I got it home, and I opened it up. It was like a million pieces. And I thought, again, I have to make a choice. Do I get someone and pay him? Well, maybe you should try to put it together. I did. It took me three days, and I got the thing together. I didn't have a screw left over. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> but, you know, that was something that I was able to do. But also today, I know my limitations. But I try. I try, and I just don't sit there and stare at it and say, you know, a chocolate cake's going to fix it or something like that. I don't have to do that anymore. And I can call friends like that one there, Rick, and say, oh, my God, you know, this is going wrong. And he'll probably say, you know, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get some help? Or are you, going to, um, are you going to try to do it yourself? Or are you going to accept it? And my time is up. And I thank you very much for listening. And please send up the basket. That's the uh, box. Thank you. Okay, now we'll, have quest- now we'll have questions, and we look at the box, and let's see. If it doesn't have a name, I'll just hand them out. Well, uh, you have to tell me when the time is up, which is 1.30, so we have about 12 minutes, that's all. I think the time is up at 1.20, right? Aren't we s- no, you're right, 1.30. 1.30? Yeah, it is. We started at 1.30. What? So it's three. Oh, I'm sorry, three. Well, you know, I was a taxi can No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. But, um, you know, as Helen was saying something about, you know, neurotic, you know, one and one is three. I'm a tax account and I always say, I used to be in my old life when I was still working. I haven't worked in a while, but I always say that one and one is, uh, if you don't give an accountant a calculator, one and one is three. <laughs> but it's okay today. Jerry, would you like to take the first one? Okay. And I want to ask you, can you come and fix my picture? Sure. <laughs> Please explain in detail difference between food plan and abstinence. <clears throat> can you go off your food plan and still be abstinent? I don't know. For me, my abstinence is my food plan. You know, I, I, there's different interpretations. But for me, um, what I eat is, you know, my food plan is my abstinence. So, I mean, that's all I, and my absent is three weighed and measured meals a day, and um, uh, I have two grains, and, and that's it. I don't eat bread, and um, that's just, that, and that, that is my abstinence. So, I don't know, is there another way to explain it? You might have another way to explain the difference between a food plan and abstinence. Yeah, for me, I abstain from certain things that I never eat. That's, you know, my, that's my abstinence. My food plan is what I have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and those snacks. My abstinence is pretty concrete. I haven't had a Reese's peanut butter cup in 18 years. I've never had a Krispy Kreme donut, if that's a good example, you know. Um, So that's the difference. But, uh, you know, my food plan is all over the place. It's certainly not perfect, I'll tell you that. It ebbs and flows. Thank you. I'll answer this one. Do you still use the gray sheet? No, I don't, because uh, it, it was kind of ridiculous. But I thought that would be the way to get me to be perfect. And as I told you, I was on the pink cloud. I fell off. 
and then it was more reasonable. I found a good sponsor because when I came and everybody was handed the gray sheet, they handed it to me. I'm five foot three. They also handed it to a guy who was six feet tall. You know, when you think about it, it doesn't make much sense. But at that time, it made all the sense in the world to me. Okay. Um, this is for both of us, Hannah. Uh, what are the imperfections in your program? Today, I would say the imperfection in my program is that it says compulsive food behavior. What I eat is okay, but I don't like the way I, I'm, since I've been retired, I'm so, I want to do so many things, and I start rushing through my meals, and my meals are supposed to be sacred, because that's my time with God, but I have, you know, just started to rush and rush through my meals, oh no, I got to go here, I got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I really don't like that, and to me, that's imperfect, because I am not giving God in my abstinence, the time that God deserves. Not, I'm not eating mindfully is what I'm saying, and I need to do that. So that's what I find imperfect about my food plan now. Okay, what is imperfect to me, I used to inhale my food. I was always done with a meal probably 20 minutes before my husband finished, and he would say, could I finish before you pull the plate out? That was still perfectionism. And today... It's okay. I mean, I don't have to do that anymore, and I love to have a, a meal with a person with another person, and I have a friend who eats twice as fast as I do now, and isn't that wonderful? One of those days she might slow down too, but it took me a long time. I had to learn that. Okay, do the next. Okay. The next question is, how did you help or work with your daughter about body image? Well, you know, the good thing with my daughter is she's not one of us. And I just think you're born that way. And you can tell whether your kid is one of us at your first Halloween. <laughs> my mother the very next day is, oh, my God, you didn't eat all that candy. Where in the hell is the rest of that candy? My daughter's Halloween was six months later. You go back and, why didn't you eat all this candy? Didn't you like it? She goes, yeah, but I'm not going to eat it all. Okay, that's the difference, you know. So she, you know, had a little bit of a problem with body image only when she was uh, in the dan on the dance team. But because the other kids gave her a hard time, she quit the dance team. And I, I just have a wonderful story about that, and I've just got to tell you how some people are thrust into this world with normal minds, and I wasn't. They made fun of my daughter on the dance team. They said she was the worst dancer on the team, that she was fat, which she wasn't. She couldn't get the moves right. Her bra strap was always showing. And then they all had a girls' night out one night, and they didn't invite her, and they posted it on Facebook. And I said, Kelly, what are you going to do about the problem? Because <laughs> I wasn't going to solve it for her. And she goes, well, 14. I guess I'm not going to be on the dance team next year. You know, I, and I wanted to go slash the mother's tires who drove the, who drove the car, you know, to bully my daughter. They toilet papered our house, you know. That's the difference. I've just got a normal kid. I can't take any credit. Thank you, Helen. This one says, what do you do after these many years in OA to keep it fresh, new, and exciting? I tell you, when I go to conventions, and I said I'm a convention junkie, or any event that OA puts on, 
I get so excited. I forget about eating. That's the only time in my life, you know, usually it's breakfast. I wake up, open my eyes, breakfast, and I know the times because, <laughs> but when I'm at a convention or around people, that's the only time I can forget about it. And to me, any time I go to some kind of an event that has to do with OA, to me, that is so exciting. And so I like to keep going to these things. Thank you. I agree. Uh, to keep it new and exciting, you know, just getting ready for a workshop, just doing some of the service that I do. And I, I write for an OA loop every week also. So it, just doing that, I can feel my heart beating fast because it just it just doing, just coming and getting ready and, and going back through the big book and doing my writing and stuff, that keeps it exciting for me. I just travel. I leave my area. We've got a really good meeting in Lakewood, two of them that are like the best away in the South Bay, practically. But I go to Los Angeles once a month for a meeting. I go out to Orange County once a month. I leave my peeps to see other peeps, and that keeps it fresh for me. Okay, it says, I have trouble at the end of the day. I think it beforehand, but what what I always forget, any suggestions? Well, I was the kind of person I would lose a lot of weight if I wouldn't eat breakfast. So I wouldn't have breakfast until 10 o'clock, and then I would have my lunch and my dinner, and then I started grazing. And that's a, that's one of the things I had to learn what to do instead of. I had to change my habits. And I did go, and I still do go to a lot of meetings. I'm very grateful. I live out in the desert near Palm Springs. But I'm able to go sometimes to four meetings a week. I couldn't do that when I worked, but today I can. But I was always able to talk about it. And I would bend my sponsor's ear, you know, and tell him that I wanted to eat so bad because, you know, I would watch all the other people when they had their stash. And I still thought it took a long time before I thought, no, you're hurting yourself. You know, is it worth it? And so I had to change my habits, and I got out of the house a lot. Even if I went to the mall one at times, we didn't have food courts in those days, and I would march up and down and up and down just to get away from my place where I used to do my binging and my eating at night. So think about something like that. Um, the, the question. Um, do you ever get into um, fear that by this year of abstinence, I should have X amount of emotional recovery, uh, etc. And how do you deal with this fear um, using the program? Well, you know, this is called imperfect. And that's the way my emotions are. They're imperfect. Uh, and I wish I would just handle, I don't know, maybe I handle them better. I hope I handle them better than I did 41 years ago. But I don't know. The other day, um, I was at my yoga class. And... Um, I was, you know, we have our little group there that, that we all talk, and um, my friend was, I was telling my friend about this cat problem that I have. It's not a problem, but I'm making it one. And so I was telling her about my cats, and she has cats, and we just both love cats. And so anyway, and then, you know, we just started doing the, the yoga class started. So um, then um, after, I heard her go and tell another woman that she couldn't focus on, on her yoga practice because it was something bothering her. And she didn't come and talk to me. So I thought, oh, I, I wonder if she got mad at me. 
I wonder if she's mad because I said this. I wonder if she's, or I'm, and I really just felt like I'm left out, just like I was when I felt like I was in, 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 in grammar school. And I'm not going to be part of the yoga in crowd. And they're just, you know, they're not like OA people. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have talked about my cats. So, and it was really bothering me because I thought we're going to get together to go to this dance and all this. And um, so I came home and I, and I called this person and they didn't answer. And I, went, oh. and I just really felt like a loser, really. I felt like a loser on the outside world. And um, so I said, why don't you call your sponsor? So I called my sponsor and I told her and, um, <laughs> and she says, Jerry, do you think maybe it's not about you? And I said, well, maybe. And she said, well, I think maybe you don't need to worry about it right now. You're just overwhelmed. You're just doing too many things, and so everything is bothering you. And so I said, okay. And so then I started uh, reading the big book uh, for the rest of the day. And um, then, I, um, then I got a message from her. And what she said was that, you know, she was going to send me some information, but she couldn't think so clearly during the yoga class because her father's ashes were being, um, were being um, distributed, just whatever, scattered, were being scattered that morning, and she didn't think it was going to bother her, but it really did. So that's my emotional recovery. I can, you know, take things so seriously in my self-centeredness and make a big deal out of it. And, you know, maybe a perfect person just would have thought, but, like, my emotions are not that perfect all the time. So, um, but I hope they're better. I can, and you know what? I can't compare myself to other people. And I did that. I'm 71, and I did that my whole life. Comparing myself to that person, comparing myself to that person. And I'm not as pretty as she is, so that must mean I'm ugly. I'm not as smart as she is. That must mean that I'm dumb. You know, and I can't live that way. And it just, it just makes me sad. You've spent 71 years comparing yourself to other people, and it's not necessary. I can only compare myself to myself. But anyway, I don't know what that had to do with the question. But <laughs> Thank you. Do you have another one? Yes, it says, could you please discuss the experience of relapse and getting abstinence back, what helped, what worked? Um, you know, I think you never get rid of your abstinence all at once. It's not like, you know, it was a little at a, t at a time. And I started putting more time into other things. Uh, you know, I had a very, I didn't have my first child until I was 40. And the marriage wasn't good. And here I am with a little kid in my 40s. And uh, just, you know, terrified, what am I going to do now, you know? And uh, I knew the marriage wasn't working out. And so I started having bigger meals and not being honest, telling everybody the marriage was good and how grateful I was and, you know, just lying, basically. And then somebody brought in some donuts, and you know I abstained from donuts. And I thought I would just have one. And it was without a thought. I never thought. You know, I haven't had donuts in 12 years. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And I'm telling you, the weirdest thing happened. I had one donut. I do not know where the other five went. Had there been more, I, I just inhaled them almost unconsciously. And I looked at the empty box and I thought, 12 years. I can't lie anymore. I just had six freaking donuts that I inhaled. 
And they just went down effortlessly. And so, of course, getting your abstinence back isn't easy, you know. And so I had to tell the truth, and it was so humbling. You know, you've been in the program for what? At this, at that point, over 20 years taking a 30-day chip. It's embarrassing. But you can't have any ego and be in this program. You just can't. You just got to throw that out the window, you know, because the alternative is insanity or death. So I'm willing to let go of my pride. And I think the way you get your abstinence back is honesty. Thank you. We only have one left and we still have some time after that. And it's open for sharing. But if you come up and you'd like to... Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I have one here, but I thought that you two had done yours. Mine is, what is the best piece of advice you would give to a newcomer or a chronic relapser? Stay busy. I when, when I had time, when I had too much time on my hand, I was always thinking about food. Now, as I said before, I would go out and go to a mall and walk up and down and physically exercise. I don't have to do that anymore, but... Also, it's a good idea to go to meetings. When you're around people, I've never seen anybody binge in in a meeting, and that really helps. And I would go to as many meetings as I can. And if you have this urgent desire, there is a telephone. I know it's very heavy, the 1,000-pound phone, but it is okay to pick it up. I was one of these people, before I'd call you, I knew exactly that you didn't want to talk to me, to you. So why should I call you in the first place? Now, isn't that stupid? But that's how I felt. And a chronic relapser, well, I don't know who your sponsor is, and if you talk to a sponsor about your relapses, maybe it's time to get a different sponsor. Maybe get someone who's a little stricter with the food. Because for years, I I called in my food, and I still write my food down. Because the thing is, my thing is, plan what you eat, and then eat what you plan. And sometimes it's not quite the same I can look at it and take inventory, take stock. And um, I just want to mention real quick, you know, something real exciting happened. I have only one sibling left because our parents are long gone. You're, of course, at my age. And she watched me in OA for 37, maybe 38 years. And she never wanted any part of the program. And every time I got there, and she lives on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, she would say, I'm going to do exactly what you do. And she did while I was there. And I got excited. I thought, oh, my God, you know, finally she's getting it. She's a lot younger than I am because, and she was really way up there. And so finally I released her. I think I saw her the last time about a year and a half, maybe almost two years ago. And she said the same thing. And instead of getting excited, I just said, okay. And lo and behold, it was her time to get it. So it doesn't matter how much we want another person to find this program and have this program and work this or work this program. We all come here when, our, when the time is right and when we want it bad enough. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. But as a chronic relapser, look at it, take some inventory and see what is causing it and maybe try to make some changes and talk maybe another inventory. Talk to a person about it. And may, maybe another person can make suggestions. And we make suggestions. I don't tell you now you have to, have to follow that gray sheet. I thought that's what they told me when I came, but they didn't. But I took it wrong but talk to another person or talk to two or, different, two or three different people. And then take what you like and leave the rest, but something that you might be able to work with. Yeah, one more. Yeah, I have one more question. It says, what 
do you quickly do when you don't want to acquiesce? Call somebody. When you don't want to acquiesce to life and what's really happening and when I don't want to take in reality as it's really happening. Um, yeah, I mean, the speaker last night, you know, talked about, you know, his head never having a good idea. My head doesn't have a good idea, you know, and I'm like a dog with a bone, with a thought. And um, it is really hard for me to release things. But I'll tell you, there is nobody in OA that's ever come up with a bad idea for me. Never. And I've been in 41 years where I've called somebody and they've given me bad advice. Because any advice is better than this advice. I've never called somebody back and go and went, that was a stupid idea. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and let me just tell you something about what drives my anger. I assume motive. I not only know what you did, I know why you did and how it affected me. In reality, I don't even know why I behave the way I do. So who am I to assign motive and say, well, she did that because she's selfish or greedy? I don't know you or what motivates you. Just in the last 10 years, I've dropped the motive. I don't know who you are. I don't know what motivates you, and I can't even guess. You're one of my fellow human beings, and my only job is to accept you precisely the way that you are. But I can't do that alone. I need to call other people and constantly get feedback from other people because my head is generally speaking, not my friend. Thank you, Helen. And I just would like to add that for me, it had a lot to do with attitude. Rotten attitude, good attitude. I was up north uh, last weekend, and I had a flight back from San Francisco. I missed one by five minutes, and I had to wait seven, seven and a half hours. And then uh, when the flight was finally scheduled, it was delayed, and, you know, in the old days, I would have been so mad, and I probably would have taken it out on the flight personnel or the guy behind the counter because I was good at that when I was very young, like before program. But instead, I looked at my little, and it's a knockoff Fitbit. I said, gosh, you made 6,500 steps. You took 6,500 steps at the airport, you know, dragging my little carry-on. So I'm always trying to look for the positive in anything that's not that great. And my negative attitude was I would always look for the negative part. And that's a big, big difference. And it took time. It does not come overnight. But by listening to other people when they were talking about things like that. And I think I learned more from people when they talked than trying to study things. Because book learning, you know, that didn't avail me anything. But when I heard people going through uh, tragedies and, you know, life on life's terms. I mean, as I said, I lost my husband 20 years ago. I had to rebuild my life. I thought my life was over. But... I found another purpose in life. And the people, when they know that you're there, if you go to meetings and they know that you're always there, they ask you. You know, last year at the convention, I got a lot of kinds of emails. How come you weren't there? And I said it was too far. And I live in Palm Springs, and the convention was in San Diego. How come? It's not that far. I said, well, I was in Istanbul, so that was a good... But, you know, but the thing is, people notice that you're not there. They expect you're a part of it. But if I'm just visiting the program and I show up once in a while, people don't know that. So I want to be part of. This is my family, and I want to be part of. Anyway, 
It's, we have 20 minutes, so let's say 15 minutes left, and would you please time us again? If anybody would like to share or come up here, but you would have to sign the release form. So the floor is open. Pardon? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea. So anybody who would like to come up and share, please do. And the mic's right here. If not, we can meditate. Hey, Aaron, I thought you were going to... I know. I, can't. I thought somebody was going to come up here, but I guess not. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, there. Great. Wonderful. Thank you, Evan. He's going to sign the release form because we are being recorded. And you can sign Mickey Mouse if you want to. That's okay. <coughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Evan. Wow. This step out of my comfort zone. So I just wanted to claim my seat or claim my standing and lying down position in the back. Thank you, everybody, for your shares. I'm kind of a retread. I first, I think 1989, Wellesley, Massachusetts, on a Sunday night, I stood up for the first time and said I'm a compulsive overeater and got a sponsor. So I'm not sure, what, just one goofy little thing that I want to say about, it's like we talk about just a lot of long-termers here. Last year, I think the convention was right near me in San Jose. A friend was hosting one of the committees, and I chose to go to a singles party that night instead of the OA dance. This year, maybe five or ten pounds heavier, I got my ass down to Orange County, and I'm glad to be here. Um, as a little kickstart again to my program, I came in kind of at a more normal weight. Um, and it's just good to be here to, I kind of jokingly say lately, to I'm here for brainwashing. And usually, usually that's a negative term or addict, you know, it's such a negative term. But really to wash my brain back to some of the, the core kind of pure truths before I got all this other craziness in my head about I don't feel good, eat. You know, the four major food groups in my household, different than some people's, but same, were sugar, flour, fat, and quantity. (laughs) And just to hear the reminders in this weekend of intensive reprogram. Just like, just to, to hear, I guess to stand up and say that, yes, I heard in the very beginning of this meeting that I'm different. The brain chemistry and the mind and the thinking. It's like I, I want to tear up a little bit. Just being reminded of that in a place where other people can relate. I go out in the world. I mean, it's, it's mostly women in here, which is fine. But being a guy, there's that little other extra element of, you know, what's wrong with you? That's a girl thing, or be a man, or whatever. So it's good, you know, to have the men here, too. You know, the sharing earlier, uh, John, and last night hearing it. So I'm just here to claim my seat and to humbly readmit that I, you know, I'm not a 300-pounder. I'm a and I still have, you know, I've 
maybe controlled it a little better. But I still have that, the allergy, the body allergy and the twist of the mind that is worse, that says, oh, it's okay, it won't matter, I won't get a headache this time, oh, I, you know, whatever. So for me to stand up here and just introduce myself, you know, I came down alone and it's good to just kind of connect up here. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Thank you Evan. Pardon me? Yes. Hi, my name is Sue. I'm a compulsive overeater. I actually never shared at a conference before, so this is a new experience. Um, and I just wanted to address, just for me, um, somebody had asked the difference between abstinence and a, f- a food plan or a plan of eating. Um, and for me, they, they, they are different. Okay, So for, for me, my abstinence is no sugar cake, candy pie, you know, all of that sweet dessert stuff. Okay. Um, and peanut butter. That, that occurred like a year and a half after. <laughs> and I tried everything. I tried the reduced fat peanut butter. I tried the reduced sugar peanut butter. I tried, you know, and, I, and then I started adding equal to the reduced sugar peanut butter because it wasn't sweet enough. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll just get the real peanut butter and I'll just measure it. And it's like, well, I could measure it in the morning, but at night I'd measure it like this. And I was like, oh my gosh, throw it in the trash. Well, but I really like peanut butter. It has protein, you know, whatever. So finally peanut butter went by the wayside. Um, so in those, my absent foods, I do not have no matter what. Now, I aspire to abstinent food behavior, which means not shoving stuff in my mouth. That's, that's a work in progress, okay? Um, also, abstinence to me means working towards a healthy body weight, also a work in progress, okay? Now, in terms of my food plan, I tend to eat minimally processed, um, basically plant-based foods. I don't call myself a vegan because I, I don't have the whole political thing, and I'm also not... Um, 100% that way. Like this morning I had creamer in my coffee because I don't like it black. and So I had creamer in my coffee, okay? And if, if, if you were a vegan and you were a militant, I would be like, you know, you just don't do that kind of thing. Um, so, so that's kind of the difference. So my food plan is I'm, you know, minimally processed, mostly plant-based. Well, having a little creamer, I kind of went off my food plan. I didn't, I didn't blow my abstinence. Okay, see the, see the difference? Or if I, um, when I was in Europe last year, I was in a restaurant. There was literally not a single thing. I was in Germany. There was not a single thing I could eat on the menu unless I wanted to just have lettuce. And that's not going to do it for me for supper. So um, I had a piece of fish. Okay, that was off my food plan. Okay, I didn't break my abstinence. So, so that, that, for me, that's how it, that's how it works. It's always a work in progress, though, and if I'm going to make any big changes or come up with a new plan, because one thing is I have difficulty um, refraining from eating at night, and so I've gone back and forth with my sponsor, tried to figure out something, and now we have something that seems to be working. Where I have an evening snack, I write it down, I make sure I've had enough calories for the day, given how much I exercise. I don't don't count calories, but I can kind of eyeball it. And then the kitchen is closed. So so that that works out. 
So um, anyway, it's an evolving thing, but I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. It took me a whole year. I admire you for getting up here before I opened my mouth. Anyway, we have time for a couple more. Anyone else? Who's There's one. Okay, come on up. Okay, I'm Lynn. I'm a compulsive overeater from Santa Rosa. I keep looking around in meetings. I don't see anybody I know, and that's great. But I, I mean, from Santa Rosa. But I see people from San Diego and Las Vegas and all the other conferences I went to and worked on. And for me, to coming to these things, uh, OA events, OA birthday party, uh, I went down to look at my 12-step within booth that's down there, and they're starting to lay down like retreats and cards for different activities going on in the area. So for me, too... Coming to these things, I hear new things, fresh things. And I've been in program since 1990 with a three-year hiatus into the wilderness of the real world and came back and committed I would never leave OA no matter what happens. I don't care what's going on with me. I don't care where I am. I will always continue to go to OA. And I think that's important to commit to because I don't question the program. I question how I work the program. And an example is that is about a half a year ago, I went to a conference, and there was a session on prayer and meditation, and the question was, how do you meditate? And what do you do when those thoughts go zinging through your mind when you're meditating? And some woman, I don't know who she is, she stood up and she says, when those thoughts come up, I acknowledge them, and I dismiss them, and I keep meditating. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool instead of dwelling on them and going with them and trying to rein yourself in. Well, I stored that in my mind. And then last night, I'm staying, because of my financial situation, I'm staying at an Airbnb over by UC Irvine. And I went to the food court over there. And I swear, even though I'd been in this meeting all day, or all the yesterday stuff, I went out there, and all these kids are between 18 and 22. They're all dressed to the nines. They're all eating little bitty cups of things. And I ordered a nice little meal that was perfectly abstinent, but my self-esteem began to plummet because I'm not between 18 or 22 and because I don't look like them and I'm not going to UC Irvine. And I just, that thought came up and I acknowledged it and I just dismissed it and said, enjoy your meal. So what I'm saying is when you come to these things, even though I'm not taking notes this time, things are coming in here that will help me in a weak moment. And that's why I keep coming back. And last thing I want to say is I have a friend in OA. She was 92, and she passed away. And she'd been in program since the beginning. But I am comforted by the fact that I know that that morning she called her sponsor and asked how she could improve herself, how she could work her program better and that was the answer. And I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be the oldest one in the room, working on improving myself, making an action plan, and turning it over to God, which she did. And off she went. So thanks. Sign in back. Please sign the back. Okay, thank you. No, I uh, thank you all for sharing. We have time for one more. Anybody? Come on up. Oh, we have time for two. Yeah, sit in front. Sit in front, Chris. You're next, Chris. Hi, my name is Paula. Hi, Paula. 
and I'm so grateful that I'm in OA again. I uh, knew Helen. Her mom was my first sponsor in OA, um, and probably in the 70s. And um, I graduated from OA, went to CEA Howe, even became a maintenance sponsor, lost all my weight, and I became so proud of myself that I figured I don't need this anymore. I can sponsor myself. Well, that was the biggest mistake I ever made because I gained most of my weight back. And then um, while I was in CA Howe, a good thing did happen. Um, I was having problems with my daughter, and um, this lady said she wouldn't sponsor me, and, and she was the only sponsor unless I went to Al-Anon, and that really has helped me with my daughter. But um, then when I was in Al-Anon, this other girl, I was telling her, you know, I write 10 steps, but I don't share them, and I don't know what my part is. I don't have a part. And (laughs) she just laughed at me, and she said that there's a very good meeting and that I could find out where my part was because if I didn't know it, they would tell me. (laughs) So (laughs) I went to that, and then I figured I better go back to Overeaters Anonymous because that did work for me. So I'm back in OA one year and three months, and I'm so grateful. So thank you all very much. It's nice seeing you again, Helen. Thank you, Paula. And did you sign Paula? Hi, I'm Chris G., um, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, you know, one, I, I just want to thank this panel. And first of all, I want to thank everyone on the panel because I was down here visiting my dad a couple months ago, couldn't tell you when exactly, and I get this text from Lori, will you, sure. And then I get this phone call from Helen, will you come and, and be on a panel? And I'm like, I, I wasn't coming. I'm from northern Nevada. I wasn't coming. I'm so glad I'm here. And so glad my two roommate cohorts are here, too. You guys, this program saves lives. And I got news for you. I've been abstinent for about 24 years. I've been around for 35-plus. I was figuring it out, and it's actually longer than that, but what does it matter? I never feel like I have it right. I never feel like it's exact. I never feel like, and what I can tell you is that progress, not perfection, is the name of the game because we never, we're not perfect. We are human beings. And this, like, I don't weigh and measure. Now, I do measure when I start seeing, hmm, that looks like, oh, I'll never forget. I, I do drink. Um, and I was thinking, okay, so you got to, you know, you want to lose a little bit more, you got to look at this. So I poured and I went, yeah, that looks like four ounces of wine, right? It was eight. I started laughing. I started putting it on Facebook. Okay, be careful. So, you know, when, when my food starts looking bigger, I, then I get out, you know, what's four ounces? What's this look like? I don't do it all the time, but I do it. And because my eyes get really big. And there are times now, I will tell you this, there are times now that I'll put something on the plate and I'll go, that's too much and I don't eat it all. It's rare. I am a compulsive reader. I, you know, I have this much of an anorexic in my head. It has never hit my body. Never. 
or my, my food. I, I am a volume girl, and I have to – that is like my number one thing is I have not binged in 24-whatever years. I have not always eaten the perfect amount. I have not. But I constantly talk to somebody else that has a little bit better handle on it than me because my head, was it, I think you said, my head doesn't have, and I've never gotten bad advice from anybody in here either. When you're calling on an outreach call and you think, oh, they don't want to hear from me, somebody said that, and thank you, the other butter woman in the, in the room. Um, I was writing you a quick question, but they brought it up here too fast. Okay, so... Never has anybody given me bad advice. I've gotten some, eh, maybe I'll check it out with somebody else advice, but never have I gotten any bad advice. And people love outreach calls. We love to feel like somebody needs us, and it gives me the confidence to then feel okay when I'm hurting and I need to call somebody. So just remember that. This is, it's not an I, it's a we. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you, Chrissy. And if you came up here and you haven't signed, please, when the meeting's over, please come up and sign. I want to thank all of you for participating, and uh, I had a great time. And the wonderful thing is that we're all different, but we're all striving, you know, trying to get in the same direction and working towards it. Uh, abstinence is different, and you've heard that from all three of us. And uh, having a sponsor, in my opinion, is very important. And I had a big decision to make. My sponsor had been my friend for 30 years. And I'd been in program for a long time. So, I, you know, there weren't very many people around who had more time or absence in program. It's perfectly all right to ask someone who does not have as much time in program if you like their program. And I learned that, and it's a good idea. So thank you all for participating. And after a moment of... Um, Quiet meditation, which I learned. I asked a monk once in Tibet, and I said, you can do this perfectly. He said, no, my thoughts wander, and then I just call him back. And somebody said that, and you know, that really helped me because I wanted to do that perfectly too. So a moment of meditation after that, well, shall we all join our hands and say, I put my hand in yours, which our wonderful founder, Roseanne, wrote, and I hope a lot of you got to meet her. She was a great person. <laughs> 